wounded members of the special operations teams they support. Special forces are army units, long known as the Green Berets, built around 12-man A-teams in seven groups, each oriented to a different region of the world and each with 54 such teams. The teams are versed in local cultures around the world, functionally fluent in at least one of the languages spoken there, and able to recruit, train, and supply indigenous personnel or military units to operate more effectively on their own, or to synchronize their work with either conventional U.S. forces or U.S. special operations units. I was privileged to work with virtually all of these units during my active duty service. I have continued to work with them in one fashion or another since I retired in 1991, and now I arrange full college scholarships for the more than 325 children of special operations personnel killed on duty. I am deeply honored to have served with so many of their fathers. Colonel John T. Carney, Jr., U.S. Air Force, retired, August 24, 2002. Chapter 1. Tunji, Afghanistan The first war of the 21st century quickly became America's first special operations war. President George W. Bush's War on Terrorism, triggered by the September 11, 2001 attacks on New York's World Trade Center and the Pentagon, began on October 7, when Bush and Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld announced the first U.S. airstrikes against forces of the repressive Taliban regime and al-Qaeda terrorists as part of Operation Enduring Freedom. Within a few weeks, they would announce the first two raids by American Rangers and other special operations forces in Afghanistan, and acknowledge that small, clandestine teams of American special forces and special tactics units had begun operating directly with Afghan anti-Taliban tribesmen. A brave young Afghan described the role that these special operators played in that war during a fierce firefight in eastern Afghanistan in January 2002, when an American special forces and special tactics team leading anti-Taliban forces came under such withering fire that his comrades fled the battleground. Taliban and al-Qaeda fighters had depressed their anti-aircraft guns on the hills and mountains surrounding the U.S.-led troops and were inflicting gruesome losses. But this particular Afghan stayed as the Americans held their ground and radioed for close air support strikes to suppress and destroy the enemy weapons. In the midst of this raging and bloody battle, the Afghan flung himself to the ground directly in front of the American sergeant to protect him from incoming rounds. Markham yelled at him, what are you doing? The Afghan replied calmly, Sir, if they kill me, I'll be replaced. But if they kill you, the airplanes will go away. As American special operations troops in the country increased from a few to less than a hundred to several hundred, TV pundits and op-ed columnists complained that President Bush's war on terrorism had bogged down into a stalemate or quagmire. TV screens were filled with images of precision-guided bombs exploding on fuzzily pictured mud huts or barren, rugged terrain, but there was little sign and no word of progress against the Taliban. What would come to be known as America's first special operations war seemed to be off to an inauspicious start. Unfortunately, many observers did not and could not appreciate how special operations, special forces, and special tactics teams really operate. Once inserted into Afghanistan's inhospitable terrain, these troops had to make contact with the disparate tribal groups making up the Northern Alliance, 
establish some rapport in any one of a dozen or more languages, sort out which tribal leaders might prove reliable allies and which were ruthless warlords out to dismember their rivals, teach them how to scout out lucrative targets, prove their own ability to support alliance operations by calling in effective airstrikes to decimate opposing Taliban forces, and then persuade them to seize the moment and attack so as to incur minimum casualties. All in all, a difficult, dangerous, and time-consuming process. Although small pockets of resistance remained in most cities as Taliban forces either surrendered or tried to blend into the countryside, by late November, all of the Taliban strongholds had fallen in quick succession to northern and then eastern alliance tribal forces. Whereas the U.S.-supported anti-Taliban had controlled only about 20% of Afghanistan in early November, mostly in the north, by mid-month they controlled half the country.